Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in the first of a two-part episode, we're hearing from Sergeant First Class Alana Duffy, an Army veteran who served in Afghanistan and Iraq in 2004 and 2005, conducting counterintelligence and interrogation operations. In Iraq, Duffy suffered a traumatic brain injury from an IED. So I joined the Army in, well, I signed my contract in September of 2002, so less than a year after the U.S. entered Afghanistan, and then I left for basic training in April of 2003, so about three weeks after we had crossed the berm and entered Iraq. It was uh, a decision that I did not necessarily make lightly, but it was largely because I had grown up wanting to be an astronaut. I like engineering. I like tangible things that I can do or I can build or I can contribute. And having wanted to be an astronaut since age six, I wanted to be a part of bigger things. And Went to engineering school, got my master's degree, got a job in the middle of a recession, and was basically just sitting there staring at blueprints of linear feet of drywall and said, well, I can't even see a window from where I'm sitting. I have no idea if it's raining outside. This is not being an astronaut, to put it mildly. And I decided that day to call a recruiter and I decided to go into the army because the army, especially army enlisted, would let you choose your job. I opted at that point that I was going to do something fun that put me on the ground and making a difference because I ultimately, my plan had been do it for a few years and then put in a pilot packet and switch over to the Air Force. That ended up not happening for a variety of reasons, but part of it was also, I just, I loved what I ended up doing. I did intelligence and intelligence collection work. I was an interrogator. I was an investigator. I liked the puzzle, the problem solving, the find the bad guys with the bombs before the bombs go off the aspect of really being able to make a difference and of seeing the effects 
of what I was doing and knowing that every time I walked out of a, a meeting with one of my sources that I had gotten something from, I would be able to make sure that someone else on either side, the Iraqis, the Afghans, the U.S., would be able to go home to their families uh, uninjured because of something that I had been able to contribute. And that to me was just a really good feeling to have. I was sitting in class at Cornell and I had been sitting in an early class, like an 8 a.m. engineering class. And so we didn't get notifications. I mean, there were, nobody had a cell phone, or if you did, it's not like you had a smartphone. You weren't connected to the internet or anything like that. And I walked out of that class, and I think the first plane had hit maybe a minute or two prior because somebody who was walking in the door to the building saying to somebody else, like, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And um, they had some inane conversation about it because it was one of those incidents where a pilot had a malfunction or something like that. Uh, it's It wouldn't be the first time. And I mean, I had grown up just outside of New York City. My father grew up in New York City. I saw grandparents there. I saw cousins there. Um, a lot of friends, a lot of my high school friends were in the area. And so I said, I'm going to go and check this out, especially, I mean, my father's working in, in Manhattan. And so my father worked actually for the news media. And so I went into the a little dining facility with those box TVs up on the walls and I was standing there and I watched the second plane hit. And I mean, by then, obviously, it was very clear that this had not been a small biplane. This was a commercial aircraft. And then I watched the second plane hit and and I watched the towers fall. And I remember calling or trying to call home. I remember somebody actually looking at me because I was just in shock and somebody turns to me and says, hey, do you want to borrow my cell phone? And I was like, no, I have a cell phone. There's no way you're going to get through right now. There is an antenna on top of the building that just came down. And uh, it wasn't until, I mean, much later that I heard from my father basically saying, you know, hey, I'm going to be uh, stuck in, in Manhattan for the next couple of days, but like, I'm okay all the bridges and tunnels are closed. You couldn't get home. And uh, I wouldn't say that it was a triggering event for me to decide to join the military, but I would be lying if I didn't say that it played a role, mostly because I wanted to contribute. I wanted to help. It's just part of my nature. I want to do things. I want to help people and go back and help what I consider, like, that's, even though I grew up uh, just on the other side of the river in Jersey, 
that's still my city. That's still like, I mean, I've been going there since I was a baby. It was a part of me. And obviously, I mean, it was horrifying. And, but I, I still was like, no, I'm going to keep on the track that I'm, I'm on. I hadn't done ROTC. You know, I hadn't gone to a military academy. I said, I'm going to go the civilian route to become an astronaut. I ignored the fact that my eyesight was garbage uh, until NASA told me, oh, wait, your eyesight is garbage. So, you know, a year or so later, it was just, no, I need to, I need to do more. I need to do something. I need to be a part of the solution in this insanity. And uh, I wonder if I can contribute in some meaningful way. And so he signed up. When we went into Afghanistan, you would have to been on some kind of happy pills or something to to think that we were going to just hop on in there, find the bad guys, dissolve an entire terrorist network that's operating through several countries, which we knew at the time, and then pop on back out of there. I knew we were still going to be in Afghanistan, even when I had signed up, because we had already been there for 11 months. And I was like, yeah, there's a whole cave network. There's, I don't know, all of Pakistan. Like, we need to do something and we need to probably change the way that we're doing it because just going in there and trying to shoot a bunch of people is not working. And I mean, we still have bases in Korea. We still have bases in Germany. Like this is a long-term thing. I don't think I was ever under the impression that we would get out of Afghanistan. When we went into Iraq, I was like, what are we doing? This is kind of not a good idea. And I had almost been hoping that we would realize that and hop back out. But, I mean, that was a mess to begin with. And I always saw the purpose behind being in Afghanistan. I'd been in the military maybe nine months, less or so, by the time I was on a plane to Afghanistan. And... I had been in my unit for like two months after training. And I remember touching down in, in Bagram and I remember looking out and you can see the, the Hindu Kush mountain range in the background. And it looked like that was the only time I think in my entire military career that it actually looked like a movie. But at that point I was like, yeah, I, I just looked at the setup that we had in Bagram, which is nothing like even what it is now. And I was like, oh yeah, no, this is a long haul base. And then Iraq, the impression was always a, we'll squat on old bases and like not necessarily build a whole base or whatever, because, you know, oh, eventually, like, we won't be here that long. We're just here to find, you know, WMDs or take out Saddam again or whatever. But I think that the mentality going into Iraq was it would be more short term. But I don't think that going into Afghanistan, it was ever even meant to be short term. And it would be foolish to think otherwise, because if you're trying to go against a huge embedded network 
like Al Qaeda, you're looking at something super involved. And I didn't even need intelligence training to understand that you're going against something that big and that in depth. And we had encountered that in Vietnam. And that's why we were there for so long is that, you know, the unconventional warfare is not something that you're going to knock out in a year or two years. Today's episode of Warriors in Their Own Words is brought to you by BetterHelp. Everyone has something that interferes with their happiness, whether it's isolation during the pandemic, stress and anxiety, grief. With BetterHelp, you can get matched with a licensed therapist and connect online. It's safe, private, and convenient, so you can start feeling better as soon as possible without ever having to go to an office. It's not a crisis line. It's professional counseling tailored to your needs, wherever you are in the world and whatever you're struggling with. Warriors in Their Own Words listeners get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp. That's HELP, H-E-L-P. Visit our sponsor at betterhelp.com warriors. Join over 1 million people taking care of their mental health with BetterHelp. Again, that's betterhelp.com warriors. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Afghanistan was such a weird deployment. Uh, so my unit had gone to Afghanistan as a company-sized element. Intelligence was very heavily deployed, especially out of the 18th Airborne Corps. I was part of the 525th Military Intelligence Brigade. And because I was doing human intelligence, we were mostly interrogators and counterintelligence agents. I ended up being cross-listed as both, but at the time I was supposed to be a, an investigator and an intel agent and a human intelligence collector and operator. But as a company element, I mean, our company was, I think maybe like 40 or 50 of us deployed. So it's a small unit. Intelligence companies in general are small especially in the human intelligence side. And half of us stayed at the main country interrogation facility for, at the time, it was the GTF or Joint Task Force 180, run by 10th Mountain. And we were attached to them as the support intel unit. So half of our company stayed at the interrogation facility. And then the other half was divided into small teams of four and sent to various outposts to do human intelligence collection operations. And I was put on the team sent furthest out west to the center of the city of Herat, 
this is 2004. So the ring road of Afghanistan was not only not built, but regularly being rebombed every time a piece was built. The area was still run by a warlord. Almost all of the provinces were being run by warlords. We had a very strategic mission, especially because we were very close to the border of Iran, where, I mean, plugging all of those border leaks was not something that was easily done. And so our day-to-day was basically, you know, like, head out to the border and talk to border guards, head up. To, we were responsible for four different provinces, Farah, Herat, Gore province, and Badgis province. So we would take multi-day missions. We would go with a special forces team, just, you know, us, a special forces team, and occasionally some of the civil affairs teams. And we would take three days to go up to the main city in, say, Badgis province and see if we could figure out what's going on up there. Are there also people coming in from the Turkmen border, like the different tribal issues that were happening, you know, how allied were people against both the Taliban coming back or up against each other? What about the interfaction and intertribal rivalries? So we also had a heavy mission working with the United Nations in support of elections and election security. We worked with some of the other embassies. Um, and then we also fulfilled regular or semi-regular roles on the very small compounds. The compound we were on had maybe 80 field artillery. It was like two platoons. It was it was like nothing for, for a field artillery unit, but there were 80 field artillery guys a small civil affairs detachment and a small special forces detachment and our little four-man team. We were dropped right in the middle of Herat City and basically said like, okay, you know, go change the world, stop the war, see if you can figure out who's bombing the old ring road and uh, see if you can figure out also what, the uh, what your local warlord is planning because uh, we need to get some stability going. And about half the time, our warlord was fighting with the warlord up in uh, running Mazari Sharif up in the north. And so they each had their own little private armies and we would just get on the radio to, at the time the, there was a British contingent running the base up at Mazari Sharif and we would just get on the radio and be like, hey, some of the guys are massing on the border. It looks like the private armies. Uh, do you want to ask your warlord to step down? Is it our turn? Like, what do we need to do here? Um, there were riots in the city when some of the local factions were fighting with each other. And so we had to monitor that because there were still minefields and tanks and all of that stuff left over from the Russians in our area that no one had taken care of because it was considered the wild West. And, you know, the U S military hadn't been out there much. So it was, it was fascinating. 
There weren't interrogations or significant interactions from the Afghan deployment that really stand out. I mean, that whole deployment was just kind of peculiar from the way it was set up and how isolated we were. It was tough. I mean, we we couldn't get mail or food for like two months at one point because the Air Force couldn't be assured that we could secure the airfield where they would make our drops, which was at the south part of the city. So we had to, it was like half an hour away by convoy. And so at one point we had, we had to do a call for fire because of the riots in the city. And, you know, our compound was taking fire. The German compound was taking fire and all of this stuff. And we were actually about half staffed at the time because most of our command structure was down in Farah province doing, I don't really know what, but I don't remember what at the time, but we're trying to call for air support to at least do a flyover to try and calm everybody down and remind everybody, hey guys, like stop shooting over our compound. If you want to shoot at each other, at least go around. Like it's not a big compound, just go around the block. And it took over 24 hours to get a flyover because we were just so far removed from any type of support. So it was tough. I mean, I, I going to, because being a woman operating in that environment and with the job that I had to do with talking to locals and trying to get into the heart of who the bad guys even are, I remember going to a school, what was supposed to be a girl's school, and it was operating out of, you know, like GP medium, the tent structures. And there were probably like 15 young Afghan girls and a teacher, a woman teacher. And because I was a woman, I could talk to her and because, I mean, nowhere was safe, uh, even with the Taliban supposedly gone. I mean, the women, the girls, schools, women trying to get an education, all of it was very much a target. And I just remember going to the school and trying to talk to the teacher who was risking her life every day. And these girls who valued their education so much that they're six years old, they're seven years old, but they know what the risk is of going to school every day. And yet they were still going. And I mean, the boys' schools were fully functioning in their buildings and, you know, the girls' school is still in this uh, old army tent that, you know, maybe they had scavenged from the, from the Russians or maybe our civil affairs guys had given them at some point. But it's a heavy dose of reality when you start seeing things like that and talking to some of these people who are, you know, they're just trying to do what we take for granted. And it was, it was heartbreaking that they were the most vulnerable and yet the least protected. And um, it still kind of affects me, especially as, there are 
negotiations with like the the Taliban and all I can think back is like, you know what? I would rather keep a presence in Afghanistan than let them come back. And those girls who risked their lives at age seven to go and get an education have to go back to living under Taliban law and under the thumb of the Taliban because like keep us over there if that's what it takes. Negotiating with the Taliban is a non-starter because they can say all day long, oh, we're not going to get it back into control. But no, 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 we'll be legit now. They have not shown that to be the case. And I have seen the effects of what that does to the women of that country. And that stays with you. The danger, the the look on their face and kind of the relief whenever, whenever we would show up was just kind of a, oh, cool. Like there's cars pulling up. Boy, I sure hope that one of them aren't gonna, isn't gonna explode. That was the mentality that they lived with every day. So we get back from the six month deployment and when you get off the plane and, and stuff like that, it's you know the middle of the night. Our battalion commander had come to greet our company out at the airfield at Fort Bragg at Pope Air Force Base. And I remember him looking out at our and saying like, hey, you know, great job. You guys are already like you're you've already been put in for like presidential citations. You guys did amazing things like did great stuff. Well done. By the way, the brigade, whole brigade is slated to leave for Iraq around Thanksgiving. This is now like mid to late July. So, you know, like three and a half months ish. We'll try to hang on to you. Like, we'll try to keep you guys back a little bit longer, but we're not super sure that we can. So don't unpack much. Nobody's really going to schools. So spend some time with your families, go on leave and uh, get rid, just uh, be prepared that you're not going to be home very long. And um, I think uh, I got my eye surgery done. I got my uh, scuba certification. And uh, actually I started pilot, uh, I started uh, getting a private pilot's license, but I never got to do my solo flights because we left for Iraq. Um, And, uh, but I couldn't go to jump school, even though I was an airborne unit because there just wasn't enough time to go to schools similar to when I'd shown up at my unit and they were like, well, you're slated to the company that's going to Afghanistan in two months. So we don't have time to send you to jump school. Now we'll send you when you get back. And so then when we got back, it was, well, we don't have time to send you to jump school. Now we'll send you when you get back. And then I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. I need, I need a break. Um, Cause Iraq was exhausting it was a completely different environment. It was a completely different deployment. The mood, even in Iraq, I was originally, I spent the first three months in Iraq at the Green Zone, which is the international 
spot in Baghdad. You know, it's where the old Republican palace was, um, the famous cross swords. I guess that's a sculpture. I don't really know what to call that thing. But um, uh, I was originally on a team that was at the Green Zone, and it was the Iraqi elections. Uh, The Iraqi elections were slated for shortly after we got there. We ended up going they held us back until like the day after New Year's. So we were about five or six weeks behind the rest of our battalion. So what was kind of nice about that is that meant we spent less time in Kuwait during the ramp up. You know, they were stuck there for like three weeks and we were only there for like three days. You know, all the love to Kuwait for being safe and, and everything, but that powder sand is awful. So... We get up to Iraq and our our company, basically we're doing the same thing that we did in Afghanistan. Everybody's getting divided up into these teams. Uh, And the team I was on was assigned to the green zone. I was working pretty much directly out of the U.S. Embassy, which at the time was at the Republican Palace, at Saddam's old palace. And, you know, the embassy was regularly getting targeted in, in rocket attacks. And, but you don't necessarily have the same security that you do at a major military base. So, you know, no alarms were going off, no, no, nothing. It was um, just kind of, you would hear a loud explosion and uh, you'd be like, Oh, huh. They're rocketing the embassy again or, or something like that. It was every time I went to another base in Iraq, it was like a, different world, like, oh, right, I'm, I'm in the army again. And I was mostly doing, we were supposed to be doing what we call walk-ins, which is basically somebody is coming to the gate of the green zone and says, I have information. I need to talk to somebody. And they would call our team and say, somebody's saying that they've got something. And I mean, there were all these other agencies running around. If it has three letters and operates in the Washington DC area, they have representatives there, but the army primarily handles all of these walk-ins. We also handled outside of the green zone, the surrounding areas, which includes Sadr City. And there was a huge problem at the time with kidnappings both local, national, and international kidnappings were, I mean, it was near constant, especially with, you know, local families, you know, reporting somebody going missing because it was almost always like, hey, did you guys take them or are they kidnapped? And nine times out of 10, they were kidnapped. And there was a an organized effort out of uh, Sadr City that was, kidnapping and sending international folks over to Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I started working with the embassy hostage working group because they actually did not have an intelligence collection element attached to them. So I was kind of like moonlighting because during the day I was working on either walk-ins or like doing embassy liaison or meeting with the ambassador or something like that. And then in the late afternoons or whatever, I would be coordinating with uh, the hostage working group and, and trying to 
get in touch with folks that I know at the interrogation facilities to follow up on other intelligence that we were gathering there. There were a lot of high profile kidnappings at the time. This is early 2005. So Sergeant Keith Malpin had been missing already for a while. We knew we were looking for recovery at the time, not rescue. But so we were trying to figure out where the body was buried. We were looking for the Italian reporter, Giuliana Sagrina. And then, of course, we were also looking for some of the fun, high-value targets like, uh, you know, Zarqawi and, I mean, sure, Bin Laden, but, you know, he's in Pakistan. We all know that. And we're in, we're in Iraq. We have our own problems at this point. That was Sergeant First Class Alana Duffy. We'll hear more from her in the next episode of Warriors in Their Own Words. Make sure you're following the podcast to see part two in your feed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Senior producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Dave Douglas. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.